Jackson. You may be seated. Our Old Testament reading and sermon text for this morning is Psalm 150. And our New Testament reading is found in the book of the Revelation to John. Made a mistake. It should say Revelation 19. Revelation 19, verses 1 through 10. So Psalm 150, excuse me. Hallelujah. Praise God in His sanctuary. Praise Him in His mighty heavens. Praise Him for His mighty deeds. Praise Him according to His excellent greatness. Praise Him with trumpet sound. Praise Him with lute and harp. Praise Him with tambourine and dance. Praise Him with strings and pipe. Praise Him with sounding cymbals. Praise Him with loud clashing cymbals. Let everything that has breath praise the Lord. Hallelujah. And then our New Testament reading from Revelation chapter 19. beginning with verse 1. After this I heard what seemed to be the, the loud voice of a great multitude in heaven crying out, Hallelujah! Salvation and glory and power belong to our God, for His judgments are true and just. For He has judged the great prostitute who corrupted the earth with her immorality and has avenged on her the blood of his servants. What's more, they cried out, Hallelujah! The smoke from her goes up forever and ever. And the twenty-four elders and the four living creatures fell down and worshipped God, who was seated on the throne, saying, Amen! Hallelujah! And from the throne came a voice saying, Praise our God, all you his servants, you who fear him, small and great. Then I heard what seemed to be the voice of a great multitude, like the roar of many waters and like the sound of mighty peals of thunder crying out, Hallelujah! For the Lord our God, the Almighty reigns. Let us rejoice and exult and give him the glory. For the marriage of the Lamb has come, and his bride has made herself ready. It was granted her to clothe herself with fine linen, bright and pure. For the fine linen is the righteous deeds of the saints. And the angel said to me, Write this, Blessed are those who are invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb. And he said to me, These are the true words of God. Then I fell down at his feet to worship him. But he said to me, You must not do that. I'm a fellow servant with you and your brothers who hold to the testimony of Jesus. Worship God, for the testimony of Jesus is the spirit of prophecy. This is the word of God. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word as it is read and as it is heard. It is your very word inspired of you down to every jot and tittle. 
it is profitable for us in terms of what we're to believe and how we are to live. So, Lord, we pray that your Holy Spirit would illumine the word to our hearts. And now, Lord, grant your spirit to your servant. Grant the unction and anointing of the Holy Spirit to proclaim your gospel with clarity and with power, that that your name may be glorified as your people are edified in the hearing of your word. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Well, like I said, this is my last Sunday as part of the regular rotation. So you're going to get the whole thing today. No holding back. I don't know when my next opportunity will be to be here with you. So put on your seatbelts as we move forward. Of course, we've been looking at the Psalms in this interim period between the time when we issued the call for Matt to come and the time when he will finally come. And I've been selecting Psalms, and it might seem at first to be randomly selecting Psalms, but about two times ago when I was here, when I preached the introduction to Psalm 96, I tried to bring all the threads together and show you why we revisited 1 and 2, why we looked at 8, why we looked at 24 and 29 in book 1, and then why we looked at Psalm 80 in book 3, and why we looked at Psalm 90 and then 96 in book 4, to try to show the narrative that comes forth from the Psalms of how God has worked providentially in the covenant he made with David, and in the kingdom of David. And the Psalms themselves, as I've tried to demonstrate you, reflect that narrative in verse form. So how do I bring this to a conclusion? Well, we're going to look at book 5 this morning and culminate with an exposition of Psalm 150, the last of, of these Psalms. And I'm going to do a walkthrough of the entire last book of the Psalter. Not every single psalm, but I want you to see how it unfolds. Let me remind you of what we've learned from Dr. Morales, biblical theology professor at Greenville Presbyterian Theological Seminary. The narrative that undergirds the five books you find in the psalm uh, can be summed up under these headings. This narrative, this progression, this chronology. Book one the rise of the Davidic kingdom. Book two, the glory of the Davidic kingdom. Book three, the collapse of the Davidic kingdom, which culminated in the destruction of Jerusalem in 587, 586 B.C. David's throne is in the dust. David's son is taken away in captivity along with all the other people during the time of the Babylonian captivity. Book four the absence of the Davidic kingdom, which corresponds with the Babylonian captivity. And what do we see there, especially looking at Psalm 96, the pinnacle psalm and a poetic pyramid of nine psalms that are all Jehovah is king 
Psalms. Even though David's son is not on the throne, the throne doesn't even exist in the time of the Babylonian kingdom, God is not dethroned. He sits enthroned above. This is what we saw in, in Psalm 96 and in book 4. And now we come to book 5, which is the return of the king. And I want to show you this because it's fascinating as it unfolds. Psalm 107, which is the first psalm in book 5, is an introductory sermon. And what does it celebrate? It celebrates the return. When Cyrus, the king of Persia, issued the decree for a remnant to go back and to rebuild the temple in Jerusalem, a remnant of God's people returned to rebuild the temple, reinstitute the worship of God in Jerusalem, and to settle in the land. God kept covenant even though Israel had broken covenant when he brought them back. And Psalm 107 celebrates that. That's the beginning of the return. But we're looking for the return of the king, not just the return of the people. But when is David's son going to take his rightful place upon the throne? That's the question. And so look at Psalm 108. Look at Psalm 109. Look at Psalm 110. Look at the titles of those psalms. What do you read? Psalm 108, a song, a psalm of David. 109, what do we read? To the choir master, a psalm of David. 110, what do we read? A psalm of David. Here we have three consecutive psalms all written by David. It's like the compiler of the Psalms, the editor, whatever you want to call him, the scribe, our Ezra, (laughs) if it might might have been Ezra, whoever it was, the chronicler, we, we don't know who it was. But whoever did it is saying, remember David, remember David, remember David. Remember God's covenant with David. Remember what God said to David. David, your seed will sit upon this throne forever if they keep my covenant. Alas, they didn't. They broke covenant. We know that from the history. That's why they're taken away into exile. But God keeps covenant and David's seed will sit upon this throne forever. Remember David. Remember David. Remember David. 108, what is it about? I'm going to sum it up briefly. The exaltation of Messiah. Psalm 109, what is it about? I'm going to sum it up briefly. The humiliation of Messiah. The crucifixion of Jesus is depicted in Psalm 109 in a way similar to what you find in Psalm 22. There are nuanced differences in terms of distinction, in terms of what David is declaring in those two Psalms, but they are about the humiliation and the crucifixion of the Lord Jesus Christ. And then Psalm 1, the exaltation of Messiah. There he is identified by David. David calls him, the one who is coming, he calls him Lord. He calls him Adonai. David's son will be David's Lord. Jesus takes up that very theme in the New Testament and ask, I think it's the Pharisees or the Sadducees, whoever it was that came trying to test him, and ask the question, why did David say of his son, why did he call him Lord, you say? Because Messiah will be the son of David, who's greater than David. 
when he comes. And so you see the kingly office. But then you read a little further down in there and you read, he's also a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek, a priest that is greater than Aaron. And how do we know he's greater than Aaron? Melchizedek is greater than Aaron. How do we know Melchizedek is greater than Aaron? Aaron, because Aaron is a descendant of Abraham. What did Abraham do? He paid tithes to Melchizedek. A priest, after the order of Melchizedek, the writer of the Hebrews takes up this theme. You see, Jesus, the Messiah, will fulfill the three offices, prophet, priest, and king, in Psalm 110, accentuates the two offices of his kingship and of his priesthood. Remember David, he's coming. And we see something of the nature of what his mission will be as Messiah in his exaltation, Psalm 108, his humiliation, Psalm 109, and his exaltation in Psalm 110. Then we move to 111. It's a hallelujah psalm. It begins with hallelujah. 112, it's a hallelujah psalm. 113, it's a hallelujah psalm. Three hallelujah psalms. Remember what we saw last time? I know I'm going fast. I know I'm going through these numbers fast. But we saw last time the first appearance of the compound word hallelujah in the Bible is in Psalm 104. 104, 105, 106. Three hallelujah psalms to end book four in anticipation of the coming of the king in book five. Now we have an introductory psalm, three psalms by David, three more hallelujah psalms, 111, 112, 113. 115, 116, 117, what are they? They're hallelujah psalms. Three more hallelujah psalms. In the middle of those, 114 is not a hallelujah psalm. Now you really got to think to remember back as far as it was when I preached through the Hillel of Egypt. When I preached 113 to 118, the psalms that are sung at Passover, pointed out to you then, and you know you probably don't remember this, but I'm going to remind you, maybe some of you do remember it, we have another one of these poetic pyramids of hallelujah psalms. 111, 112, 113, 114, 115, 116, 117. There you have these seven psalms. What's the psalm that's in the middle? 114. That's the pinnacle psalm. If you look at Psalm 114, it's not a hallelujah psalm, but it tells you why they're praising the Lord. It's a short psalm that celebrates what? God's deliverance of his people from bondage in Egypt through the waters of the Red Sea. And then in the very same verse, through the waters of the Jordan River in order to to conquer the land and to take the land of promise. Forty years of history in one short psalm, which is what celebrated at Passover. Now, one other thing I want to tell you. The Hallelujah Psalms begin with 111 and end with 117. The Hallel of Egypt begins with 113 and ends with 118. Now, what are the Hallel of Egypt Psalms? They were the psalms that were chanted by the Levitical choir when the Paschal lambs were being slain at the temple, the second temple Judaism, in the second temple time. They were the psalms that were sung as part of the liturgy from house to house as they ate their Paschal lambs, 113 to 118. 
Why not a 111 to 117? Remember I've taught you <clears throat> there are certain pointers that you find in the Psalter. There are certain kinds of Psalms that are used as bookmarks. When you find one, you say, why is this here? What goes before it? What goes after it? One of those bookmark kinds of psalms are acrostic psalms. An acrostic psalm is one where every succeeding letter in the Hebrew, can't see it in English, but every succeeding letter in the Hebrew in that psalm is the, 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 the succeeding verse begins with the next letter of the alphabet. It's a, it's a poetic device that the Hebrews often used. You find an acrostic psalm, it's there for a reason. Here's something interesting. Psalm 111 is an acrostic psalm. Psalm 112 is an acrostic psalm. That becomes a bracket that sets off 113, which begins the Hallel of Egypt. <clears throat> psalm 119 is an acrostic psalm. That includes Psalm 118 in, with this group of psalms, 113 to 118. These are the ones that were used at Passover. And 118 is a primary messianic psalm. It is the foundational text for Jesus' teaching in the last week of his life and ministry here upon the earth. It's extraordinary to see. And the Jews, even today, when they celebrate the Seder service in their homes every spring, if they use the Union Haggadah, which is the liturgy for the Seder service, what do they sing? They sing the Hillel of Egypt, including 118. And yet their eyes are blinded to see that that's about Jesus. We see it, and we see that it's about Jesus. <clears throat> 118, 119, they're important too. Why? It's the third time we have this unique coupling of a law psalm and a messianic psalm. Psalm 1, law. Psalm 2, Messiah. Psalm 18, Messiah. Psalm 19, law. Psalm 118, Messiah. Psalm 119, law. That's another one of these bookmarks that you find. 119. It's not just an acrostic psalm, it's a Torah psalm. It's a psalm about law that extols the law of God. What's 120? <clears throat> Turn to 120. Look at the title of 120. What do we find? What does it say? You should know this because I preached all of these psalms. If you remember, A Song of Ascents. Look at 121. What's the title? A Song of Ascents. 122, A Song of Ascents of David. You get the pattern? There's 15 consecutive psalms beginning with 120 that end with 134 that all have the same title, a song of ascents. There's no other psalm, no other psalm in the Psalter that has that title. Those are a group of psalms. What were they? They were the pilgrim songs. They were the songs God's people sang while going up to Jerusalem to worship. The Hallelujah Psalms, the Hallel of Egypt, were the songs they sang when they got there. 120 through 134. Then you have 135. <clears throat> and I might add, 134 ends the Songs of Ascents with a benediction. What's 135? 
It's a composite psalm, sort of like Psalm 96. It's a composite song that takes from Psalm 115, from Psalm 18, from Psalm 134. All of these psalms are in the heart and mind of whoever wrote Psalm 135 as he writes Psalm 135. It's like an extended version of 114. It's talking about how God has given his people deliverance from bondage in Egypt and into the promised land. It's the same message that you find in 114, expanded version. So 120 to 134, psalms they sing on their way to celebrate Passover. 135, it's a hallelujah psalm. They sing praise to God because of what God has done. Do you see? Am I going too fast? (laughs) It's pretty extraordinary. Then 136 is what? It's the great Hallel. What does 136 do? It takes the subject matter of 135, goes all the way back to creation, and then it adds a refrain. And the refrain comes from that same psalm we saw in 1 Chronicles 16. It's the Hesed, the steadfast love of the Lord endures forever. God's covenantal faithfulness after every single line of Psalm 136. Now what have we seen so far? From 111 to 136, these psalms are devoted to what? To the public worship of God at the temple. And that's a central theme that we see in the Psalter. God's house, his dwelling place at the temple. And what happened when the people of God returned on the decree of Cyrus, the king of Persia, he sent them back to do what? To rebuild the temple in Jerusalem, to reestablish the worship of God on earth in Jerusalem. And in 520 B.C., from 539 to 520 B.C., 520 B.C., they completed the task and the second temple was rebuilt. But they reinstituted worship as soon as they got there and built the altar. The worship of God is taking place again on the earth as God prescribed this law. But still there's no David's son sitting on the throne. 458 B.C. Okay, 520 B.C. That's when the temple was completed. Many years later, 458 B.C., a scribe comes to Jerusalem. Remember his name? His name was Ezra. I have a sneaking suspicion he's the one who put the Psalms together. I don't know that for sure, but I have a sneaking suspicion it was probably him. Ezra comes to do what? To bring the Word of God, to preach the Word of God to a people whose hearts had grown cold once again and bring spiritual revival and renewal to Jerusalem. And then you come down to 445 B.C. There's a cupbearer to a king in Persia. His name is Nehemiah. He receives word that the city walls are still laid waste in Jerusalem. He doesn't know what to do. What am I supposed to do? What am I supposed to do? If I go to the king and if he doesn't smile on me, what's going to happen? What's going to happen to me? But he does. And the king 
smiles upon him. And he goes back and read the book of Nehemiah. It is extraordinary to see what God does in just a few short days in rebuilding the city walls. Now the city is fortified. The temple's in place. It's been there now for a number of generations already. The temple is there. The city walls are fortified. Now they're waiting for the coming of the king. When's David's son going to come? And they have to wait for 400 years. And when he comes, he comes into the city. He doesn't go up Mount Zion. He comes riding on the foal, the colt of a donkey, and he comes in. And he goes up Mount Moriah, and he cleanses his father's house. Do you remember what they were singing to him as he made his way? Psalm 118, the last of the Halal of Egypt Psalms. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna, son of David. But by the end of the week, the crowd was saying, crucify him, crucify him. Give us Barabbas. And rather than having a crown of jewels placed upon his head there's a crown of thorns and he was driven off of I believe Mount Zion I think that's where the Praetorium was Maybe wrong but I think so and up a small hill called Golgotha where he was crucified but that's your salvation that's the redemptive work of Messiah the humiliation even unto death death on a cross and then his exaltation and resurrection in an ascension and accession at the right hand of God. And he's coming again in the clouds of glory and consummation. Is it that's the biblical message? This is what underlies these Psalms. Let's quickly move now to Psalm one fifty. And again we find it is the concluding Psalm of a five Psalm poetic pyramid. Five Psalm Poetic Pyramid that begins with 146 because what happens all of a sudden now, after, since 135, there's not been any Hallelujah Psalms. You come to Psalm 146, it begins with what? You can look at it in your Bible. It says, praise the Lord. It actually in Hebrew is Hallelujah. How does it end? Hallelujah. Look at 147. Hallelujah. It begins. It ends. Hallelujah. 148. How does it begin? Hallelujah. How does it end? Hallelujah. 149. How does it begin? Hallelujah. How does it end? Hallelujah. And then 150, the concluding psalm of the psalms. How does it begin? Hallelujah. How does it end? Hallelujah. Five consecutive Hallelujah Psalms at the end of the Psalter. It ends with a crescendo and a shout of praise to God in anticipation of the coming of Messiah himself. It's an extraordinary story when you see how the whole thing fits together. We just walked through book five. Now let's look at 150. And I'm going to divide in this way a simple outline. You don't even have to write many words. Where, why, how, and who. That's the outline. Where, why, how, and who as we come to this particular psalm. Of course, where, why, how, and who, what. Where, why, how, and who is to shout hallelujah to God. That's what's here. Now let me remind you, oftentimes we misunderstand 
what hallelujah really means. We'll say hallelujah. And we, when we do that, we're saying, I'm praising the Lord. Like it's an exclamation of praise. It is not. It's an imperative. It's an exhortation to praise. When you say hallelujah, you're saying to everybody else, you praise the Lord with me. <laughs> hallelujah. Let's practice it. We need to do that. Let's say it. Say it to your brothers and sisters. Hallelujah. 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 That was pretty good for Presbyterians. Let's try it again. Hallelujah. Hallelujah. You see, you're shouting hallelujah. You're calling on each other to praise the Lord because of who he is, because of what he's, what he's done. When you say hallelujah, the old King James translates it best. Remember? Praise ye the Lord. You see the imperative? Praise ye the Lord. So where are we to say hallelujah? Where are we to exhort one another to his praise? Where are we to worship? Look at what he says. Praise the Lord. Praise God in his sanctuary. That's where. Now remember, this is under the old covenant. In the old covenant, you have the temple. You have tabernacle first. Then you have temple, Solomon's temple. It's torn down in God's judgment. You have the second temple. And then before Jesus arrives, Herod the Great, this wicked king, did one good thing. And that is he refurbished the temple. That's the temple that Jesus visited. But what do you find in the temple? You find a series of courts. You have the court of the Gentiles. That's the outer court. Can go to the very presence of God himself under the old covenant. And an uncircumcised Gentile could go and pray in the court of the Gentiles. But as he would progress towards the inner courts, there was a gate there, there was a balustrade that was built all the way around it, about five feet high. There were signs posted all along it in different languages. You can actually see pictures of some of these that have survived, that warn of a, a Gentile, if they go any further than that, they do upon the pain of death. Paul will call that the dividing wall of hostility. So a Gentile can approach only so far. And I'm talking about an uncircumcised Gentile. The next court is the court of the women. Jewish women could go boldly, just walk into the court of the women. Gentiles could not. Then the next court was the court of Israel. Ladies, sorry, under the Old Covenant, you couldn't go into the court of Israel. Only circumcised men could go into the court of Israel. And then you have the court of the priests. This is where the priests do their functions. And this is where the altar is. Then you have the holy place, and then you have a veil in the most holy place. There you have the sanctuary of God in its more particular sense. That is where Solomon brought in and placed the Ark of the Covenant. And it, the division between the holy place and the most holy place is a veil that was so heavy it took dozens of Levites to even lift it. You remember what was embroidered on that veil? Cherubim. 
get these things in your mind. What was the tabernacle in the wilderness? They were taking Sinai with them. And Sinai also is a reflection of Eden. Eden was on a mountain, a garden on a mountain, a sanctuary on a mountain where Adam and Eve would go up to worship the Lord. But when they broke covenant with God, they were driven from Mount Eden and from the garden and from the sanctuary of God. And God protected the tree of life from them entering in again with what? A flaming sword of fire and cherubim. That's why cherubim are on the veil. You see, this is, it's, 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 it's ectype of what you see or, 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 or how God deals in terms of creation itself rather than archetype, that which is in heaven itself. But, but that's the picture, that's the symbolism that you see. Who could go behind that veil? Only the high priest, only on the day of atonement and only with blood. In other words, under the old covenant, you can come so far to the presence of God. By grace, you can come so far, but you could not come all the way under the old covenant. Only the high priest. Just like on Sinai, only Moses the mediator could go up to the very top of the mountain and talk with God as it were face to face and receive the covenant that was given to Israel. The tabernacle, they're taking the mountain with them. Do you see that? And then you have Mount Zion. And more particularly in Mount Zion, the lower peak, that's Mount Moriah, where Abraham offered Isaac. That's where Solomon built the temple. You can read about it in 2 Chronicles chapter 3. That's where Solomon built the the temple, and this veil was in place, and the sanctuary of God was behind that veil. You may approach me, but only so far. Now, sometimes the whole of the temple is called sanctuary too. Come and you could worship God, but you could not go into his immediate presence under the old covenant, under the mediation of the blood of bulls and goats. It awaited the mediation of the blood of the Lamb of God. It would take away the sins of the world. And what happened when Jesus was crucified? When Jesus died on the cross, an earthquake shook the ground, you recall. Could you imagine what it was to be like to be at the foot of that cross and for three hours it was dark as night in the middle of the day and then suddenly the darkness lifts and Jesus says... My God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? And Jesus says, I thirst. And Jesus says, into thy, it is finished. And then into thy hands I commit my spirit. And he dies. And then the earth begins to rumble. That's what happened. But what happened across the city, what happened at the temple, that thick veil that had cherubim on the outside to keep them from returning to the very presence of God atop Eden in the old, earlier, that kept them going the very presence of God was torn from top to bottom. 
because Jesus burst through, not that one. This is the ectype. <laughs> this is the picture. This is the copy here on earth of the one in the invisible heavens that God created, that he inhabited with angels where he set his throne. And Jesus went into that throne room, not with the blood of bulls and goats, but with his own shed blood. And now the veil is rent. It's wide open. And God says, come to me. Come to me. That's the sanctuary under the old covenant. Now we live in the sanctuary under the new covenant. And the church of Jesus Christ is the fulfillment of that Old Testament sanctuary. That temple's gone. It doesn't exist anymore. It's fulfilled its purpose. This is the sanctuary of God right here and now. And the assembly of the saints in a dance studio. There's ornamentation, but there's no spiritual significance to it. How many times have you heard me say there's more glory in this room right now than a thousand Passovers in the Old Covenant because Jesus has come? And it's not just us here. Let's take away the ceiling. I've said this before. We'll put it back. But let's just take it away. Let's peel back the ceiling. Let's, 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 like a zipper, let's open up the, the heavens that we can see. If you had, through the eyes of faith, just imagine if you could see it at the very invisible throne room of God where there are myriads of myriads of angels plus the church triumphant, those who have already gone there before us, the four living creatures that surround the throne, and the glimpses we get in Scripture saying, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty who was and is and is to come without ceasing. That's we are worshiping right now in the presence of Almighty God in that extraordinary way before the heavens and local assemblies all over the earth but all before the invisible heavens and the very manifest presence of God in heaven. And so when we sing and shout hallelujah here and now when we exhort and encourage each other to praise the Lord with the hallelujahs here and now we do it before the heavens and before almighty God because Jesus has gone through there's nothing to keep you back now nothing nothing you might say my sin no your sin is gone it's been erased by Christ. You're standing in his righteousness, even as we learned in Sunday school this morning. Where? In the sanctuary. And then we see, praise him in his mighty heavens. You see? Right there. Why? Praise him for his mighty deeds. Praise him for his mighty acts. That's the way I memorized it in the King James Version. Praise him for his mighty saving acts. 
If you think in the Old Covenant of that mighty saving act under the Old Covenant, which is the exodus, the deliverance from bondage in Egypt into the land of promise, through blood and through water into the mountain, and through water and into the promised land that God gave them. A theocracy. A breakthrough and picture, really, of heaven itself here on earth. Praise him for his mighty acts. And as glorious as the exodus was and is, it pales in comparison to the new covenant exodus in the Lord Jesus Christ, who has delivered you from bondage to sin and from death itself in his own resurrection. That's why we don't celebrate Passover anymore. Why do you go and celebrate something that's a type and shadow, glorious in its own right and its own day, but in the revelation of the substance in Christ Jesus and his death, burial, and resurrection? Why would we go back, no matter how Glorious those feasts may have been in their days. Why don't we come running to this table here? Simple, yes, but infinitely more glory even than in the old covenant. As glorious as it was in its own time and place. We praise him for his mighty acts, his mighty saving acts, and ultimately that mighty saving act in Christ Jesus, which is your redemption. And then praise him according to his excellent greatness. We praise him for what he's done. He saved us. We praise him for who he is. He is majestic. His excellent greatness. We're studying the attributes of God. (laughs) All of these things come back together, you see. We praise God for what he's done. We praise God for who he is. And when you consider his excellent greatness... How could you ever praise anything else? How could you ever worship anything else when you behold by faith the greatness and the majesty of God himself and especially as revealed in his son, the Lord Jesus Christ, our Redeemer? So why? For what he's done and for who he is. Now how? Now this is going to be a little troubling for some of you. Praise him with trumpet sound. Praise him with lute and harp. Praise him with tambourine and dance. Praise him with strings and pipe. Praise him with sounding cymbals. Praise him with loud clashing cymbals. Sounds like an OPC church, doesn't it? We've already been told you're going to be singing a cappella next week. Okay, who's bringing the cymbals? Who's bringing the tambourine? Who's bringing the drums? In our day to day, who's bringing the smoke machine? How do we address this? These are commands. Will it be sinful to sing a cappella? No. It's important to understand this within its context. This is the command to worship God under the Levitical system of the Old Covenant. We had Levitical choirs and musicians and singers. 
under the old covenant. And they were to praise God with high-sounding cymbals and with the sound of the trumpet under the old covenant. But turn the page to Matthew and then Mark and Luke and John and Acts and Romans as you read through the epistles. There's not one single mention of an instrument in New Covenant worship until you get to heavenly worship in Revelation. How are we to account for this? Well, one thing, we don't have the prescription of worship by law under the new, so how do we learn how to worship? We read between the lines by seeing what they did and what was acceptable. And what we find is a far more simple worship taking place in the new covenant. Far more glorious. We're worshiping in the presence of heaven. The veil's been torn away, torn asunder. But far more simple. They met in homes. They met in catacombs. They met in caves. Sometimes they met in silence for fear of their lives. It struck my heart the first time I heard Zeki talk about in Eritrea how for eight years they almost never sang hymns in worship lest they be heard and arrested and thrown in jail. They read them. He said, he told me one time, he says, once in a while someone said, can we, can we just sing today? And they would, let's sing whether we get arrested or not. Worship under the new is more simple but extraordinarily more glorious. Let me, let me try to help you understand this. The Old Testament is the church in its immaturity. What we see there are types and shadows looking forward to the substance that will come in Christ Jesus in the Old Covenant. There's outward adornment in the Old. There's not in the New. What's the glory of New Testament worship? It's the holiness and godliness of the worshipers. We see this transition that takes place from that which is typological, that which is anticipatory, to that which is substantive, and that which is really real in the face of Jesus Christ. An analogy. Speaking in tongues. Of course, we don't do that either because we believe that that was a gift that was given in the first century signs and wonders. The apostolic age is ended. The canon of scripture is completed. Those gifts, those former ways of God's revealing himself now being ceased is what Westminster Confession of Faith says. But when Paul's writing 1 Corinthians, they're still practicing prophecy and speaking in tongues and different kinds of revelatory gifts. And it's all out of whack in Corinth. (laughs) It's all chaos in Corinth. And so Paul comes along and what does he do? He is instructing them in how to, in an orderly fashion, exercise the gifts that God gives. Let all things be done decently in order. That's what Paul is saying in 1 Corinthians 12 to 14. But in 1 Corinthians 13, he shows a better way. It's the way of love. And what does he say? He says, if I speak with the tongues of men and angels, and he's using hyperbole, hyperbole when he says that. If I could speak in every language that ever existed on the earth or in heaven, as if there are different languages in heaven, 
He's using hyperbole. If I have not love, what am I? I'm a sounding gong. I'm a clanging cymbal. He said, I'd rather speak five words in language people can understand, 5,000 words in language they can't. So if somebody speaks in tongue, somebody better interpret. That's the point that he's making there. Now, I think that's analogous to what we're seeing here too. And the old covenant worship by musical instruments is prescribed. It's not in the new. It's not in the new. It is in the old. Why is it not in the new? Because that which is substantive has come in Christ Jesus. And so the worship is to be filled with that which is intelligible. Not even five words in a tongue. I mean, I'd rather speak five words in a tongue they can understand than 5,000 in a tongue they can't understand. It's to be intelligible. Why? Because the substance of the Lord Jesus Christ has come. Now, does that mean that we shouldn't have the piano? No, (laughs) I don't believe that either. But I believe it's a circumstance to worship. I believe under the new covenant, what we're called to do is to worship him intelligibly with song and with singing and singing with gusto in a language that we can all understand and that we can comprehend as well. And the purpose of the musical instrument is to help us do that well. It's not because God commanded Brenda to praise him with a piano and the rest of us only praise him with a voice. She's helping us, as she's doing it too, praise him with the voice, with that which is intelligible, which is the lyric. Yes, the lyric delivered with the tune. I'm not saying the tune's unimportant. There's nothing I hate any worse than a a hymn tune that doesn't fit with the lyric. And there are some that are like that. You think, what in the world? You know, these lyrics are great, but this tune just doesn't fit. I'm not saying it's unimportant because we're singing. But I think there's a reason why we're coming out of that which is types and shadows into that which is substantive. And so I don't think we need to have a praise band here next week or in up a smoke machine. But it can go either way. The smoke machines are what? That's, that's mirroring the world and worldly entertainment and all that kind of thing. But you can go extremely high church as well in liturgy. I mean, I, I, I have friends that march down the aisle at the beginning of the service dressed out in their colorful robes, waving censers with incense going up unto God. That's going back to types and shadows in the old covenant that are fulfilled in Christ Jesus and abrogated. It's more simple, but it's so much more substantive and and glorious. And that's why when we sing, we should sing with gusto. You get a broad evangelical friend that comes to church here and they think, what are they doing? You know, they're not all, they're not standing up and, and looking at a screen, you know, while the smoke's going up and the light show and all this kind of thing and having music that's tingling my ears. I can't hear myself sing, but I can sure hear those good singers up front that have the microphones. You know, what are they doing here? You should be lifting the roof off this place. This is talking about worshiping God in a celebratory manner with gusto and with zeal. And no one should be able to actually come into our worship service and factually say that's boring or that's unenergetic. 
And I have been in churches before where people mouthed great hymns and psalms. And we worship Him with joy and with celebration and with reverence. But these things that we're reading here belong to the old. And what we have is better in the new. Now, one thing briefly, what about contemporary hymns? I'm all for singing a contemporary hymn if it's well written. There's some in the Trinity hymnal. There are more in the new Trinity Psalter. How many does Jonathan Cruz have? Four or five? He's an OPC minister, young fellow, <laughs> who's written four or five hymns. They're in the Trinity Psalter. Jeremiah Montgomery, our former missionary to China, he's got at least one that's in the Trinity Psalter. And Christ alone's in the Trinity Psalter. So, you know, one out of every thousand contemporary hymns is really worthy of using. Why? And I don't want to be critical. I don't. But our great hymn writers of the past were either psalmist inspired by the Holy Spirit or ministers of the gospel full of the scriptures and the knowledge of God. Those are the hymns that have endured. The Isaac Watts, the John Newtons, the the Charles Wesley hymns. These kinds of hymns are the ones that have endured. Those men were so full of the word of God it came out in songs that they wrote. Most contemporary songs are written by a guy who loves Jesus who plays a guitar. I, I, I mean, I, I, maybe, I'm, I shouldn't, maybe I shouldn't put it that way, but it's true. There's nothing wrong with the song. Why? The song is testimony of, 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 their, of their love for Christ. But it can't have the depth of the psalm that's written by one who is deeply full of the word of God. And here's my point. Even if it's not as deep, if it's sound, I don't principally have a problem with singing it, but I only can sing so many. And we're going to preach a long time, so we can't sing as many as they do in some of these other churches. And if we can only sing three, I want to sing the best. And the best, typically, a lot of them, certainly those that come out of our Bible and the Psalms, but also the great songs of the Lamb that have survived, many of them, for centuries. Hymns. Now, again, I'm not opposed to singing one contemporarily written. It's not when it's written, it's the substance of what it is. And so much contemporary music is repetitive. Why? Because that's how emotions are stirred. It's through that kind of repetition. And when how you feel is the goal of worship, you're going to get off kilter. It's how am I faithful to God in my worship of him? You will feel. (laughs) I often cry. There's nothing wrong with emotions and feelings. But, But they can't be the goal or the end of worship. That's the legacy of charismatic worship that has led the church, brought evangelical church astray in worship. That the end of worship is how many goosebumps can I count? <clears throat> Though often we get goosebumps. And I like them. <laughs> but it can't be the end or the goal. So how are we to worship him? 
with celebration, with joy, with exuberance, and with reverence. Don't forget that. And then who? Let everything that has breath praise the Lord. It's universal. Everything that breathes owes God praise. Everything that breathes. Psalm 148, even things that don't breathe owe God praise. <clears throat> Here the focus is on those creatures that are animate, but fundamentally the focus is on those creatures made in the image of God. Every man, every woman, and child is to say hallelujah. But they don't. They don't. They worship the creature rather than the creator. Many. So what's our job? To tell them about Jesus and come say, come sing hallelujah with us. Come sing hallelujah with us. Okay, close your Bibles. I'm going to read the psalm. I want you to listen <clears throat> in light of the exposition. Praise the Lord. Praise God in His sanctuary. Praise Him in His mighty heavens. Praise Him for His mighty deeds. Praise Him according to His excellent greatness. Praise Him with trumpet sound. Praise Him with lute and harp. Praise Him with tambourine and dance. Praise Him with strings and pipe. Praise Him with sounding cymbals. Praise Him with loud clashing cymbals. Let everything that has breath praise the Lord. Hallelujah. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word and for the Psalms and how extraordinarily they preach Christ Jesus and the gospel. Now, Lord, conform our worship to your word, but also stir our hearts to declare the hallelujah. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.